Hello, everyone. Welcome to my podcast. I am your host, Donna O. I wanted to create a podcast that would allow us to see the world through new and different perspectives by having sometimes difficult and challenging conversations by talking about race, gender, lifestyle, health, relationships, and spirituality. If you're ready to begin a journey that will push you to open your heart and push you to change your mind, then please join me on Moving Through and With Heart. And while you're here, enjoy the music written, composed, and performed by Ivan G. Hall. This conversation was a little bit tough, but considering the times we were in, it was necessary. My next guest is doing some incredible work in the community. We're going to discuss defunding the police, why it is important for us to begin changing our narratives of the communities that we live in, of each other, and including individuals in law enforcement. We discuss the trauma that has been caused by law enforcement, what she's doing to assist communities in changing their experience with law enforcement, and educating police on how to be more sensitive to the communities that they serve. DJ Council is a retired police executive that started an organization called UM50 as a response to the rise of deaths that were occurring during interactions with law enforcement. Her organization enables communities and citizens to become empowered by understanding the rights and how to interact safely with police. BJ Council was the first African-American female to achieve the rank of Deputy Chief within the Durham City Police Department. And after she retired, she wanted to find a way to ensure that law enforcement maintained its honor of serving and protecting those in need, while also understanding the importance of asking, listening, and hearing the community about how they need to be served. She has an incredible podcast that she started as a response to George Floyd murder, also called UN50. So get ready, everybody, for an incredible, thought-provoking conversation. I really hope that it makes you think, see things a bit differently, and opens your heart. Well, things I was thinking about, talking about, is I wanted to, just to prep us, I wanted to like talk about this the cycle that you see as a police officer out here, you know, it's, it, it, and I feel that like we're judged a lot, you know, like especially black people are judged, you know, black people in the lower income areas are judged a lot by why can't keep your kids in a house? Why can't, don't you know where your kids are going? And I even heard it on one of your pod, podcasts that you did, there was a, I can't remember the man and the woman, they were talking about their programs they had and even they were still judging, like you should know where your kids are. But then I had that conversation with you. It's like, you know, it's not that easy if you have a mom that's working all these jobs, right? So there's this cycle that happens and it's like really thinking about how we could get out of that cycle and what needs to happen and people putting so much pressure on the police to change, to change. But really, I think some of the things I've heard you talk about is that we as a community need to change. I think that's the more of heart center is how can the community begin to change so it can support well-being in these different types of neighborhoods and for people period overall. And then um, the uh, defund the police, I think is really interesting because most people think defund the police, you know, there's this whole thing about defunding the police, but really it's not that easy to defund the police. The police department is not getting money like you think they are. 
Um, and so when you start to break down their budget and you want to take away, you're actually cutting jobs. And that's not necessarily the answer to cut jobs. We, what else can we do to help police? And I, and I really do, my podcast is moving through with heart. So I really want you to think about how do you remain open? Like, how do you continue to want to give and remain open in your heart and not go into an angry, pissed off place that shuts you down? And what can other people do? Like, what are your suggestions for other people so that they don't? Because everyone is so angry right now. We're angry at the police. We're angry at the world. We're angry at communities. But, you know, we really cannot move forward you can't change anything from anger, right? It can be the fuel, but eventually you have to subside that if you're going to accomplish anything. And so those are some of the things that I was thinking about. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, I, and, you know, I think you're hitting on all the key points, I think. Okay. Um, introduce yourself tell us who you are and what you do because i think your organization that you've created is so interesting you have the podcast you and 50 and then you you also have the organization where you go into communities teaching communities how to have relationships with the police and so if i explain that probably i'd love for you to explain who you are and what you what you've done and your organizations and what you're out here doing so uh, my name is Beverly, but I go by BJ Council, and I retired in 2010. Uh, I was joined the Durham, Durham City Police Department in 1982, so I'm kind of old, and I um, retired as a deputy police chief. Had a little bit of a scandal when I left, and about five years after licking my wounds on that, and Trayvon Martin and Eric Garner uh, happened. So I created a business called U and Five O. Uh, about what I was trying to figure out was how do I as a black female police executive who obviously belongs to both communities, um, black and then also the profession that I love, how do I figure out how to get them to communicate? And one of the things, it was actually a, an interview after the Trayvon Martin uh, trial, a black guy in a black community said, they are always down here harassing us and that set with me kind of funny. It was like, as a police executive, I know if I have an officer out there not being professional, I'm not gonna know that because I'm a police executive asleep in my bed at three o'clock in the morning. So unless you tell me I have that individual who's not treating you in a professional manner, I'm never going to know and not going to be able to address that issue. So what they meant was police are always down here harassing us. Okay. Exactly. Even mm -hmm. though it was not a police incident, that's what he was saying. And so it just kind of started marinating on that. I was like, that's, and I know as a black officer, black folks don't trust police. So the thing to create a UN 5.0 was to figure out how to help black folks understand what their rights are and to exercise their rights. And it is okay to file complaints and things will begin to happen. So UN 5.0 was created with that and to also change this shift in the black minds that if you file a complaint, we will do something about it, but I have to know uh, in order to do that. So that's kind of where you and 5 started and we've been doing, I've been doing that since 2015.
So you've been teaching people how to communicate with the police and what to do, and also teaching police, am I correct, how to be in the communities as well? No, I, it mainly started out and still is primarily about the community. It was created for black and brown bodies. Anybody can listen to what I say. I mean, I've done white communities and white students and stuff like that, it, but it was built out to educate primarily black and brown bodies as to how to interact safely. Uh, and what I mean by safely is understanding what your rights are, understanding um, that you know, your interaction, your ad attitude does play into how officers are going to respond to you. And unfortunately, some officers, not all, may end up killing you simply based on how you choose to interact. And then if they're not professional, then we go from, you know, that interaction to filing complaints. So I'm not in Durham, I have a contract with the Durham City Police Department, and they are in the room when we have these discussions with the community. So they get to hear how, how people feel about law enforcement. And when I usually go in some other communities, they also, the officers are in the room, which I think is good because they get to hear from the community as to how they feel about their law, their local law enforcement officers. So are you doing, and that's really interesting, are you doing work, let's say, you know, you enter a room with a community of people and they're not comfortable about with, with the police and the police are in the room, how do the police react when they hear how the community is feeling? And are you doing anything to help them process and to change that? I am currently working on that, but they, what, I, what I'm getting is they, they basically just sit there and listen. And I think that's, that's the first step. It's just to, just to hear that raw conversation from the community because I really, and I think I've done a halfway decent job of making it real comfortable for folks to speak frankly about how, I mean, they, they're like, well, why should we do this? And they're, all, they're still, even if we do uh, comply, because my, my mantra is comply then complain. Uh, that's what I tell people to do. So you can, I want you to survive the, the ultimate goal for you and 5 is everybody to get home. I'm not, I'd start out telling everybody, I really don't care if you leave this conversation or you leave this workshop still not liking the police, that's okay. I'm trying to get you to get home. You liking them is not an ultimate, that's not the goal of UN50. The goal of UN50 is interact, get through the process, get home, file a complaint on the officer if he or she was unprofessional. I just want to take a moment and emphasize here that what BJ is talking about when she says get home safe is her teaching the black and brown community how to stay alive during a police interaction and get home safely. So just take a moment and think about that. So when they sit in a room, they get to hear how people feel about them. And usually it's just they don't say anything for the most part, but they at least get to hear it. And I think that's that's very valid. And then they also, for those that want to, they take advantage of the moment to say, you know, we have these outreach programs. This is how you file a complaint in this particular agency, those types of things. So those conversations begin to happen. What are some of the things that the community complains about? <clears throat> I don't know, I've never been in that situation. I've never actually, um, had any interaction with the police myself either. So can you share like what are some of the what are some of the main complaints that you've heard from communities and the problems? 
and you know, a lot of this stuff comes from, believe it or not, because I, I, I'd start to ask, especially the youth, I'd say, well, what's your experience? And to be honest with you, a lot of the experiences based on what they're reading in the media. You know, they get how they feel about law enforcement, uh, wherever they're consuming their information about what's going on. So it's not necessarily they had an experience, they're reading about it and ingesting that and deciding that that's their experience. Exactly, exactly right. Uh, you get stuff like uh, the officer, you know, had an attitude when they walked up on me or one lady said that they were already assuming that I've done something wrong or the officer won't tell me why they're, why they're uh, stopping me. They want, they want my information first. I keep asking them, why, you know, why are you stopping me? Why are They wouldn't tell me. You know, and, it, and what's so what's what really sometimes is uh, interesting. It really just comes down to just the officer just sometimes just being courteous. I mean, and and we're trained. I know we are in Durham. We're trained that once we stop you, we're we're like, ma'am, if you don't, you know, stop you because of X, and I need to see your driver's license and registration and stuff like that. And and for some reason, officers don't do that all the time. And sometimes it's just simply being able to interact. Uh, treating the individual with respect. Uh, not all officers do that, but those ex lived experience by some, it's just rep it's repeated throughout the community. And so they think every officer is like that. And so that's what they're fighting against. It's the, the officer who's unprofessional today impacts the entire agency. And, and so that's what, they're, that's what they're up against. But it's I did an exercise, a young man, I was doing a training and I usually have people kind of do the, how, you know, what a pat down looks like, right? Certain, you know, if you're patting you down, you're in a corner. So I had this young black male, I, you know, I was a suspect and I had him pretend he was a police officer. And he came up in the whole, I had those police officers in a room and a friend of mine who helps me sometimes was a lawyer. And I tell you, it was moving. He, he slapped my legs. I mean, he, when he patted me down, he was hitting me so hard. I mean, not hard where I was hurting, but just, it was aggressive. And we all were just shocked because that's his lived experience. That's how police officers have patted wow. him down. Wow. And we all just went, dang. I mean, he didn't do anything wrong, but it was just the, the aggressive manner in the way that he was patting me down that was his lived experience. That's his experience with law enforcement. And it, it was just powerful. I will never forget it. It was just so, and, and that's what we want to try to do. So, so why you got to pat a man down that hard? That's how they view that. Because there's a different, I mean, you, you, don't, you can pat people down, but you don't have to pat them down the way he was patting me down. But obviously that's the way he had been. Well, they always say that bad news, one bad experience travels exactly. faster than a good experience. Yes. Um, not to say, I mean, we all know that there's so many issues with the police and people definitely have had negative experiences and there's police brutality. What do you say now, especially with everything that happened at George Floyd and everything, when you go into a room, well, you're probably not going to room, everything's virtual now, I would think, right? Yeah. Are things virtual now? Yeah. So what do you say now after all of that and everything that's happening, you have protests against police and everything walking through now because we really are looking at this day and age police brutality and then there's a I mean there's a long history of police brutality and police relationships negatively impacting black people black communities um what do you say to people now you know it's got to be much more inflamed when you're trying to have these conversations 
Yeah, it is. And, and one of the things that I'm, and I'm sure you've heard the same thing uh, as black folks, this is nothing new. What's new is a cell phone with a camera in it. Uh, that's what's new. Uh, this stuff has been going on, you know, pre me and you. And so what I try to tell people is yes, that's, that's true. Acknowledging uh, what I try to tell, especially law enforcement officers, this is their reality. This, this is a reality. Uh, we can crunch all the kind of data that we want, but you got to remember these are lived experience by black and brown folks. So what, what I try to do is one of the first things I talk about when I get into the space is I try to get people just to kind of like you tell Donna, you kind of about, you know, just being, being that moment, being the present and um, be open to something that may not be something you're open to or have heard. So I really spent a lot of time up front. Uh, I ask questions to figure out who's in the room, how they're feeling and give them time to kind of vent. So it's, it's, it's kind of evolved into me doing the interaction, but it's also kind of gotten into the space of just giving people opportunity. And then what I really try to do is you're gonna hear some things that you may not agree with. And so I'm asking that while you're in this space, be open to hearing some things that you may not have thought of. And like George Floyd, you know, Michael Brown, all those incidents that we're, you know, we can all rattle off, say their name, Breonna Taylor. And so what I ask people to, to try to try to realize is not every officer had his knee on Michael George Floyd's neck. One officer decided to not be human. Well, there were four there. But one officer had his knee on the neck. So that officer chose not to move. He had the responsibility of removing his knee from that, from Mr. Floyd's neck, that officer, not the entire Minnesota Police Department, not Charlotte Police Department, not Durham Police Department, you know, I can go on. So we- What we, about the other three police? Wasn't that their responsibility there, to stop him? There is some responsibility, but see the other piece that people are not gonna understand, you also have to stand, understand the hierarchy. One of the officers was a recruit. So in the hierarchy, in the, in the food chain, he's on the bottom. So if his superior is doing something, it's going to be real difficult for him to push against that. Just like some new, new employee is going to be, like, well, that's my training coach. If he says that's fine and he thinks he's doing, then, you know, what am I going to say? I just got here. I've been here three months. You know, what kind of juice do I have? You know, so obviously that's changing. So what the main thing I try to get is the, dot, the, the language of they and start holding the, the officer, the individual officer and the agency responsible for the action of the officer. One of the things that came out with Chauvin, which always ends up coming out at some point is people will start finding out, well, officer had uh, 12 complaints, right? They, they start talking about the officers. He had 12 complaints and he had blah, blah, blah. I took a, I took a because we are, we're data-driven, law enforcement is data-driven, and to get to your question, I try to get people to understand this is a different perspective. What I have found out over the years of been doing this, after the, after the workshop, people walk up to me and go, you know, I never thought of it like that. I never thought of it this way because they're not looking at it from a law enforcement perspective. And once they, not making the excuses, but I kind of try to let them see this, this is what happens and this is why that happened. And then they'll go, oh, not taking the blame from anybody, but now they have a different perspective. You can still not like what happened, but here's a little bit more food for content. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I love that because I think that, you know, 
we can always see things from different perspectives. We always have our, our view based on our perception, based on our life experiences, but we never really have the whole picture. And it always takes more than one person to bring another piece of the puzzle in so that you could see a bigger picture. Mm -hmm. And I think it's interesting that you pointed out the hierarchy of that situation. Can we talk, a I wanna talk a little bit about what you've learned of the history of police, because I think that that perspective adds to fire, fuel to the fire of why black and brown people specifically feel the way they do about the police, how the police was set up. And then I would love to hear how we can begin to change that. Yeah, I mean, uh, you're talking about slave patrol back, obviously, during slavery time. Right. Um, so slave patrols were initiated or started to bring slaves back. And then it kind of started evolving into poor white farmers. They were given work to do. And that was one of the things that they did. And then obviously it evolves into KKK and then it involves the mob lynching. And what I'm reading now, cause I'm trying, and I appreciate you asking me this. I'm actually working on a piece now that's gonna be talking to officers to help them understand why black folks are looking at you sideways. What, it, what is that history? Why is that? And one of the things that, and you probably may know, know this as well as I, Andrew, who's my nephew, he's graduating from UNCG. When we had the podcast about slave patrols, he actually said, I've heard some of this, but I'm not familiar with it. They're, they right. don't, they, I mean, the conversation- I wasn't either when I listened. And I will say that that podcast was really intense and I had to break it up into sections <laughs> to listen to it because who was the, it was um, a professor you had on, right? What was his? Well, he's the one that we got the information from. He was eventually on not too long ago, but okay. Dr. Charles Johnson from North Carolina Central University actually gave us the info. He just fed us the information and we kind of right. read enough of it. So yeah. I mean, the thing is, I mean, the conversation currently going on now is black history. You know, what, what are we going right. to be teaching in schools? And because it's been sanitized. And so even black kids don't know their history. So what I'm doing now is trying to figure out the, to, first of all, let's, let's just, some of the things that I have issue with are police unions in the states that have police unions, fraternal order of police to just simply acknowledge the history of law enforcement. Just, just simply say, this industry has some roots in slave stuff. Just to just acknowledge it. And they're having- And continues because what he was sharing was um, prisons using um, them finding ways to imprison black and brown bodies to make them work, which was very yeah. cheap labor. Once yeah. slavery was ended, yeah. they then figured out how to imprison you know, arrest people for wrongful things that yeah. never really happened and tell them they have to work off the labor. But then next thing, it could be three months, you got to work it off. Next thing, you know, it turns into 30 years working yeah. it off yeah. for whatever reason. And, you know, I just want to point out one thing is that it's really easy to say, you know, people really think that times have changed. And yes, things always do change. The problem is the consciousness of ancestral history gets passed down through generations. Whether we're aware of it, whether we talk about it or not, it's part of your DNA. So somewhere in you, it like exists because it keeps getting passed down, passed down, passed down until we become aware of it and then we can start to transform it. Yeah. So that is a really big thing. And so 
even when if you think well that's never been my personal experience it's still part of who you are Mm -hmm. and it still comes up right like the fear of that i mean when i listen to the story like the fear it, it was so intense for me and i that was not in my experience but i just felt like in the core of my beingness, listening to it was just so, so painful. And so, and the horror, it was almost hard for me to really process it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I couldn't do it in one sitting, listening to the whole story, but you feel it in your bones, right? Like, so it's like, where does that, where does that feeling come from since I've never had experience? And it's because it's generational ancestral trauma that gets passed down. It's part of your DNA. It's part of your who you are, whether you know it or not. And that's the thing. And I think even white people need to understand that because even if they could go, well, you know, I'm not racist, I'm not prejudiced. Well, it's in the, your genealogy line that you came and ascended from, you know, descended, not ascended, descended from slave owners. So somewhere in there, it's in there, you know, and if we don't like jiggle all that stuff up, your history is in your bones. If you don't jiggle it up, you know, and start to really look at it and transform it. I feel like as a society, no matter what, we can't completely move forward. Right, totally agree with you. Yeah, we, we gotta, we gotta, yeah, we gotta put the light on it, we gotta discuss it. And I think that's where we are. I mean, I feel like personally, I think at least we're, we're really having some heavy conversations now, I think uh, just people just need to, to acknowledge that. And, you, and you're right, it is, and I can't, and I don't know whether I have it on my, on my podcast link, but the, it's Dr. Dire joy of your so post traumatic slave syndrome. Have you heard of her? I have not. Uh, I'll try to get that link to you. My uh, harmony. Uh, I mean, I've seen it. I mean, I, I before she mentioned, I had actually seen a couple of her her stuff. But she, but what you're just what you just said about yeah. it being in our DNA. Yeah. Um, it. She basically says that you know our fear is part of our DNA. Right. Post traumatic post-traumatic slave syndrome because basically what she's saying in a, in a nutshell is how do you keep people enslaved for so many years and then to go now you're free right and we and then we you know we placed the 2021 cap on and go so they never had a, they never had time to talk about all that trauma so you just kept them enslaved you abused them you did everything that you could do to them and nothing was there to help them figure out what just happened to them Right. So they carried that. So that 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 manifests itself in into their bones, as you say, in their DNA. So what she's saying that that down the lineage is, it's in our bones that we just have. I mean, it's just part of us because our ancestors never dealt with the trauma of being enslaved. Yeah. Well, if you really break it down to something smaller that maybe um, people that listen can understand, if you take a family that experienced abuse, right? children experience abuse, even if they get, whether they get removed from the home, whether they continue to grow up and become adults in their home, even if they go get therapy, they still have trouble in relationships and raising their own children. There's still a disconnect there, like emotionally, there's still a lot going on that they're carrying because of the trauma that they had, right? And then even if let's say they are not physically abusing their kids, there's still emotional and mental issues there that they've passed, they're passing on to their children. And hence that still gets passed on to the next 
group of children. And so it's in the family. Same thing with addiction. It's the same way. Like you may not be someone, you know, you had addicted parents, but you may not have addiction, but it still affected you. And you know that you have things that you need to work through, or sometimes maybe you don't, but it's still, you do your best. Yes, you do your best but you still are passing some of those behaviors, learned behaviors onto your children and in, in your relationships, they still show up. So, you know, it's just constantly being passed on, passed on, passed on. And so well, for us, it's years and years and years and years and years. Yeah, it is. And, and until we as a collective and collective as a black community understand that mental health, it's okay to say you're not okay. Cause we talked right. about that on my podcast too. Right. right? The things that you just talked about yet, yeah. But if we can figure out how to tell the family that it, or the, or the, that have lived through those weren't abused but saw abused, that you just may, you know, mental health counseling may just be part of your life and, and, and understand that it's okay. So, so as a community, we, as a black community, we got to figure out how, how do we start saying to our black selves, our black males, it's okay. And it's okay for you to seek help. And, and so we can start getting that into our culture which they, you know, it's better. It's a lot better than what it used to be uh, that we're getting people to, to understand that. So um, I'm curious, but in your group, sorry, <laughs> I'm curious in your groups though, you know, even you made me think of something, it's okay to say, I'm afraid even, because I think we tend to, as black communities, you know, want to be strong and toughen up because there's really aren't many spaces where we can fall apart or feel sad or cry or, you know, say, or just literally say, we can't, we can't anymore, we can't take it, or just feel the pain, right? Mm -hmm. So I would think even be able to find ways to teach the communities, it's okay to be afraid, it's okay to be angry, it's okay to feel pain, because, you know, underneath, underneath anger is pain and sadness, really. You know, anger is like the protective mechanism for pain and sadness mm -hmm. and, and grief. And so if we could find a way to maybe even say it's okay to feel these feelings, you know, right. what do you think? Yeah, definitely. Cause I, I actually do that and I start, I've started doing that and been doing it for the last few virtual presentations. And I did one last year that was actually in person. I, I have on my slide for, I was like, I, I'm not okay. And I let them know I am not okay in this moment. And, and just verbally put that out there into the space that as a black female, um, Lisa, whatever. I'm, I'm not okay. What, what's happening? Watching a man die has a, has a, has had an impact on me, and I am seeking counseling behind that. And so to just say into the room, usually full of black males or black bodies, it's okay, because I'm not okay. And to be able to put that out there personally and let them know. So I think you know those of us who who do go to counseling, I think we need to be brave enough to show other black folks in our community, it's okay. Because we, we, it's a process. We should not have to watch a black man die and go on about our normal day. This is so powerful. I just need you, boy, I just need you to take a moment here and just really think about what she said. We should not have to watch a man die and then go on about our normal lives. But how many of us have been doing that how much have we been watching and the things we've been seeing day in and day out and hearing and seeing and having then to still pick ourselves up and live everyday life 
that is just insanity. There's no way that we as people are okay. There's no way you can even explain that type of trauma to anyone. How just, it's so painful to even think about how this is what we do day in and day out. And trauma just affects us on so many levels, all the way down to our blood and our DNA. It's in our thoughts and it's in our movements and it's in everything we do. And to the point that we, we're just used to it. We're like we're conditioned to live traumatic lives. We don't even know what it is really doing to us, how it's affecting our relationships, how it's affecting our bodies, how our bodies even managing it. Just really take a moment and think about that. Because it, 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 it's impactful. You know, it, we should not have to feel like those who have male children to be worried about them when they go out the door that they may not come back in the door. I mean, that, that's, we need to figure out how to deal with that. And if counseling is a way to help process that, then we, we need to be open to that and supportive of those that, that seek that kind of help. How do we begin to transform that? Because, you know, the thing about it is, is that everyone's talking about like defund the police because these things are happening. And really, I mean, we need some type of law enforcement. Yes, the history of law enforcement is not, is not okay, right? We know where they came from. We know where it started. We know why they came to be and why they became to be in power. We know there's police brutality happening, but just like you said, there's still good police out there that deserve to be in communities, take care of people and to be partners. And defunding the police doesn't seem to be so easy or necessarily the best idea, but people really do believe. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, um, you know, I think defund, when they started talking about defund the police early on, especially, you know, during the election year, I was like, that that's not going to be good. <laughs> you know, people are going to probably take that and turn it around to where it doesn't sound the way they're thinking. I mean, I, I personally knew what it meant. It just meant defund for me meant reallocation. That's just because I've been around a bunch of budgets. So I, I, I know what that means. For, but for most folks who are out in the community saying that, um, they have a tendency to think that it's just a simple thing to just take money from law enforcement. So just so you, I'm okay with defunding the police. You, you listen to the show with, with, with that. What, what my caveat to saying that is if the community and the leaders in the, in the city or county, whatever, the county officials and the, and the community leaders say defund the police, my thing is yes, if that's what you wanna do, uh, go to the budget meetings and then whatever you decide to cut out, just please be responsible for whatever may or may not happen as a result of that, how it impacts your law enforcement agency. What people have to understand is that the, the, the budget for law enforcement is 90% plus benefits and salaries. 90, almost 95% of their budget is simply benefits and salaries. 
They're just paying for folks and paying for the benefits. So there's not a lot of wiggle room. So when you start eating into a budget, you're eating, as you said earlier, as we talked before, you're eating into employees, you're eating into staff. And so you got to make a decision community as to what is it you need to go to the budget. The, the, the ugly part or not the, the not so fun part of this movement is that people got to go to budget meetings. And you got to sit down and look at the police department's budget and make a decision as to, well, we no longer want the crime prevention unit because that's going to eat maybe 10 officers. We no longer want the traffic unit who takes care of speeding in your neighborhood or during uh, school hours to make sure nobody's speeding that could you know, crunch one of your kids. So yeah, but people are thinking that I think they're thinking a lot of that that police department has budget against like has military grade like tear gas and all this kind of stuff to really hurt people. They have the shields and all the things they have. I think that that's what they're thinking that they're getting all this type of extra ammunition that is actually out here hurting black and brown bodies. You know the cameras and you know everything that they're doing is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and and I and again, they, they need to look at their own budget. And a lot of that stuff that comes, the military stuff, usually is minimal. The cost doesn't it doesn't cost a lot because the military is trying to get rid of surplus stuff. Uh, we Durham PD stopped doing that even before I left. We did mean like having tear gas. They stopped using. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, the, the bottom line is if you are working at the Capitol and you have just got defunded to get rid of all your tear gas and the things that you need to take care of the folks that are riding and they're not able to do that because you, the community said, uh, we don't want them to have tear gas. We don't want them to have ride gears because X, Y, Z. And then you have the incident that happened at the Capitol. Then what are they supposed to do? How are they, I mean, we're not, we're not trying to do hand-to-hand -hand combat. And that's basically what those officers were doing. They were doing hand-to-hand -hand combat. That's a lot of stress. So you got to figure out, you know, again, it goes back to go to the budget meetings, look at what they're buying or not buying, or, and then you, the community and community leaders have to decide, you know what, we do not bring military machines in here. That's an individual community decision. I, what I usually say is defunding is a national narrative, but it's actually a local action. Because you got, I mean, because Durham PD's budget is going to be a whole lot different than High Point because of the size of our agency. So we may have 60 million, High Point may have 10 million. And again, remember 90 to 95% of the budget is salary and benefits. So you're not just cutting stuff they're buying, you're cutting bodies because they don't have anywhere else to trim the fat. Uh, we're having a bunch of uh, retaliatory shootings here in Durham. Gang members are like, you know, I'm going to shoot Don A and then Don A's group. So I'm going to shoot BJ's group. So that's what, and, you know, and then involved in that is nobody's talking to each other. So what Chief Davis did, she said, she, I mean, she's doing all she can do with that because nobody wants to, you know, tell on each other and, and whatever. So, but what she's trying to do is at least let the community know what's going on. So what she did was she took what she has a community policing um, unit community policing unit. If you were to defund police, that unit would probably disappear. If depending on how much money you wanted to get rid of, if, let's say there were 10 officers there and whatever that million dollars to, 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 to pay for them, she could get, you, you would get rid of that community uh, policing unit. But keeping in mind, she's actually using them to go out into the community to talk about these incidents and to find out information and also to alert the community as to what's, that would go away. 
That yeah, I would say I have no idea what the police do. I, I have no clue yeah, what the it, police might. I mean, they just built a brand new police department literally down the street from my house. And <laughs> I have no, it's, I have no idea what they do, yeah. what they're involved in. In fact, it's really funny. I had a policeman knock on my door just this week mm -hmm. and, um, Gerada answered the door, didn't answer it. She's like, call me on the phone at work, freaking out because it's police department, policeman there. And I'm like, I have no idea why I have police. And then I started calling around so I could figure out why this policeman came. Mm -hmm. And then I'm starting to get nervous, freaking out, thinking, does something, does something happen? I don't know. Oh my God. You know, because we, and, and I watched my own fear mm -hmm. starting to grow around the fact there was a policeman at my door, right? right. Like, right. And I have done nothing, but I started like searching my brain, something, maybe something I'm not aware of, something happened to somebody, I, you know, what, what? You know that this policeman came to my door for? Somebody a couple months ago lost their Maltese dog and somebody had a camera and saw our car or one of our cars drive past and thought maybe we might know something. Mm. I didn't even know the police got involved in stuff like that. Well, the thing is, that's probably a different unit and see you. Yeah, you, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. So, so see people, when they think about defund the police, all they think about, they, they, there's something beyond the guy, or the woman in the car. You know, there's more, there, there are more lines and more career things that are offshoot than just answering 911. And people forget that you got you. Yeah, well, yeah, I don't know. I thought that that's basically yeah. what they do. Yeah. Somebody's got to investigate. I mean, a police officer gets the call there's an incident, there's somebody that's got to investigate it, there's somebody that's got to print it, there's somebody, you know, so, I mean, there, there are a lot of tentacles to that, and people forget about that. You, you talk about the community meetings, you see police officers at community meetings, that's not your officer that answers a 911 call, that's a different officer, you know, I mean, so, see, that's the thing, people don't, when they, like, oh, I didn't know that, oh, mm -hmm. I didn't know that, and see, when you start understanding that, you go, oh, okay, now I know, now I get it, now I get it. And, and, you know, I think one of the things I, I, I still do it in, in some manner, but when I was doing in person, they were like, well, why, why don't they shoot, shoot them in the leg? Why don't they shoot them in the, in? no, I mean, we, we're trained to stop the threat. And, and the exercise I would use was somebody standing away, standing down from me about 20 steps from me, two people are there. BJ says to tell a person to drop whatever they have in a hand, don't if they have a knife or another gun drop whatever that they don't. And they keep walking toward me and I'm constantly giving them the command. I'm constantly giving them the command. BJ one might go, they're taking 20 steps. BJ one might say 18 steps is enough and I'm shooting you, right? Because I've already told you to stop walking toward me with this threat. BJ two might go, I'm gonna let them get all the way to 10 steps away from me before I do anything. Both of us are correct. That's what I get people to understand. Because Donna, it's our own perception. It's it, our own experience. Donna yeah. might make a decision that that's close enough. You, you, you moving toward me is close enough. Or some another officer might let you get all, you know, within arm's reach. And we're both correct. We're both correct. Because we're so they don't teach, it has to be a certain amount of paces. It can't, it's gotta be your own reaction. There's no way to teach that. Like yeah, it's I mean, gotta how, be when you thing, feel threatened personally, it sounds yeah, to me. It, it is, I mean, how, yeah. you gotta decide on how, how, you know, how much am I gonna allow this person to walk up on me? I mean, I mean your own boundaries, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah, how, how, yeah. I mean, why, why wouldn't I? I'm a human being. 
And I've already told you 50 times to stop moving. I mean, at what point do I need to go? I got to wait till you get this knife to my neck or this gun. You know, how, how long do I have to wait? You know, and then the thing is, well, it was a play gun. Well, have you seen toy guns today? I mean, mm. you know, so how, how long do I need to wait till you till I figure out it's a toy gun? Do you got it all the way up and your fingers on the, on the trigger to shoot me? Tell me at what point do you decide when you see a gun come up, you know, is, this, is that a toy gun? 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 And now here we are, toy gun. But you don't know that. So I, you know, I'm trying to put people in, in the position of the op. You tell me when you're going to shoot, when you pull up this gun, it looks just like a real gun and you don't, you're going to wait until they fight, then you go, oh, it's a real gun. Now you got a bullet in your chest. Yeah, I think that's interesting because I think that people, one, really, we do forget that police officers are human, right? But when you really think about, so let's really talk about humanity for a second, because I think the way I see it is police officers, you put a police officer in a community, let's say there's a lot of crime. And unfortunately, that community is mostly black and brown bodies. Even if they became a police officer because they wanted their intention was to do a lot of good in the world. If they're receiving stimulus every single day of danger or bad things happening or drug dealers or gangs or people disrespecting each other or the things that are happening eventually that intention to me starts to wane because you become conditioned by the environment that you're in. You're in. And to, I feel, you can tell me if I'm wrong about that, that starts to exasperate and change their thinking or the perception or how they're feeling about the environments they're in. And it's like, then how do we begin to change that back? Like, you know, like if you're in a position all the time where you're having to break people up or maybe pull out your gun or you used to the guy and you know the guy in the corner is selling drugs all the time and the guy in that corner is selling drugs all the time even though there's still good people in every community regardless there's always good people but a police officer seeing that every day is going to start to recondition them to people are being bad how do we begin to prevent that from happening you know like there's got to be i mean i thought of ideas i don't know if there's like you know, quarterly check-ins they have to do or monthly check-ins they have to do to, to process some of that information so that they don't, you know, so it doesn't change their openness to being with the community and start seeing everybody in that community as being bad. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. Um, that's a cycle, right? Like that is what starts to happen. I think, you know, that good pol police officer starts to get changed by their environment and they don't always get to see the good people that are in the community. Well, like you said, even the person on the corner is good. Right. Doing drugs. Uh, I think it's, it's. Well, how, like, you know, somebody yeah, would say, but he's a drug dealer. Like everyone, you know, I've had people say, yeah, but they're a drug dealer. It's all, almost like it's okay that X, Y, Z happens to them because they're the drug dealer. You know what I mean? I'm just playing devil's advocate. Yeah, I think. I think it's a valid question. I don't know whether I know the answer to that. I think for me, and I can only, and, and I know there are officers who are like me. There are more of me out there than people actually realize that are getting it done and care about the, and see beyond what you just said. 
and they understand that this is, you know, the humanness that we have to deal with, the the, the trauma, the tragedy that people have to deal with. It, it does not necessarily dictate who they are. You know, it is it is their journey. It is it's the space that they're in currently. So I think if, if what we got to figure out is try to help an like you said, help an officer manage that. Uh, because you're right. If you're just constantly seeing that all the time, it's, you, you're going to be skewed. I mean, I, right. I'm skewed. You know, I, I even have, I, I am skewed and some of it comes from the trauma and things that I have seen. But I also realize that, you know, I come home and I talk about it. I have, I have a, you know, a spouse that listens to that. You also have to figure out how to break some of the male mentality of, cause you, you hear, and I'm not sure how much of it you still hear now, but I know back in the day, you hear somebody, a spouse might say, well, he never comes, he comes home, but he never talks about it. And that's just not good. That's just not good. Um, because we are seeing people at their lowest points and in their moments of crisis. And it's repetitive. Some of it is extremely repetitive. You're, You're talking about in the community and the lowest yeah, points. In yeah. the community, yeah. That, that we, we see stuff that folks don't, the stuff that you were talking about, my, my friends on that, y'all don't want to hear this. I mean, they're working in the communities with, with these individuals. I mean, she... What my friend was saying, she said, look, I, I'm dealing with, I, I have the kids of the kids I was dealing with 10 or 15 years ago. You know, so not everybody's heard that. Explain that from the beginning so we know what you're talking about. Yeah, I've I, heard I, it, but not everyone else has. Yeah, the, this, this podcast is called Y'all Don't Want to Hear This. And the reason I had them on, because these two people, in my, in my personal opinion, for Durham, are on the ground. They're working with the, the Black community where they are. I mean, they're literally working with these individuals who are out here committing these crimes and, and the parents are trying to help them. And, and, and I think you, you, you talked about in the beginning, we're not blaming them. We're just trying, when she, when she was saying that the parent, what, what she's saying is, I think you made what you were trying to say that as black folks, we got to take responsibility for our children. You can't expect a police officer to raise your child. You need to know where your child is. You need to help your child figure out what, what authority means, what that looks like to be able to move and survive in this space. That, that rests squarely on the backs of parents. But we also got to remember that a lot of these parents have been traumatized and be hurt and, and, and trauma begets trauma, hurt begets trauma, begets hurt. And once we as a black community understand that, then we need to figure out how, how law enforcement navigates that because we see that on a generational level. So and it sounds to me like you're saying that we need to be able to be willing to teach law enforcement how to be with us at the same time. Well, we, we have to, under, yeah, we, what they need to understand is the history. And also what the thing that I'm trying to figure out is we, we need to understand that we, law enforcement, the industry itself is in the people business, right? But we're not in the customer service business because we're we're coming in to, to meet Donna and her crisis, and I gotta hurry up. And I don't know how old your folks are listening to this, but that whole dragnet thing, just the facts, ma'am, because I gotta get on to the next call. I can't I can't help you solve your problem. I can I can put a little band-aid on it, then I'm out because that's right. all I'm here for. So what what the community and what people are talking about now is mental health, substance abuse, domestic violence. I, I can get him out of the house. I can take him to jail, but if you turn around and go get him out of, out of jail and let him back in the house, he's going to beat you up again. So I got to figure out how to help you figure out how to get out of this relationship. I need domestic violence group to come in and talk to you. I need them to help you figure out how to, how to remove yourself from the situation. I don't have the time to st stand here and talk to you with that. I, mean, I won't make sure you're safe right now because I'm going to get him out your house. 
So what we got to figure out, and law enforcement has to figure out, we got, you know, because yeah, you're right, to get back to what you were saying, we see a lot and it does impact us. We go, I, was, I mean, I was telling somebody, I don't know what I said on that podcast, but we see general, I walk into a house, Donna, and it's generational. Right. I've arrested everybody in that house. Wow. Okay. And so now I'm looking over at a, at a three or four year old walking around with shit in his diapers in this house that I've arrested everybody. He walking around with stuff. I'm thinking in my head as a police officer, I'm going to be dealing with this baby in about nine years. Simply because it's generational. So that ain't nothing that Popo can help the community with. The community has to figure out how to help me as a police officer. Well, you know what? I got this house over here and they got some stuff. They need social services. They need substance abuse. They need mental health. They got kids in the house. And I need to pass that on to the groups that do customer service and can sit with you for hours and months and years. Yeah, but then they say those groups are so backed up, they can't even get to the families. I mean, okay, it's part so of the problem, now, so it's a whole nother. Well, no, actually now the stuff is starting to happen. Now what you have is if you go to the budget meeting and go to those entities or government entities that fund social services, mental health services, now community, you need to start going, okay, you, okay. so if there's any money from law enforcement that can be di- diverted, you need to put this money over here. If it can't be diverted, then you need to figure out how to pay for that service that can help these communities. So the popo can just be like, okay, here you go. Y'all need, y'all, we, we took him out. Now you need to go in there and help her. So, so the community's role in this moment for me, anyway, I think it's great, but they got to go to the budget meeting, do what you got to do with the police department, but also then realize, okay, what is it that the community wants? They want services and mental health, substance abuse, housing, import. Don't be mad at a brother because you, he's out of prison. He's already served his time, but you won't give him a job. You won't give him housing. What else is he supposed to do? He out there selling drugs because he's a proud man. He wants to support his family. His drug money is going to keep a rent over his mama's house and put food on the table. Yeah, let's face it, the job he would get would not make enough money to do anything. Wouldn't make enough money to pay. And then I think you mentioned earlier about, you know, kids, folks saying stuff like, you know, why aren't you home taking care of your kids? Well, I can't be home if I'm making $7 an hour. I got to work three jobs in order to get, get what I need. So I can't stay home with my kid and I can't. And it's still not care. enough. Still yeah. not enough. And not I got $7 an hour. Care. Yeah. Childcare. See all of that. That's not, that's not a police issue. That's not a police issue. That ain't my but issue. it affects the police. I think that's the big thing. It's that's not a police issue, but mentally and emotionally affects the police. If you're a human, there's no way you can look at that and not want to do something, yes. but then know your hands are tied. So yeah. you're not only dealing with the crap around it, right? You're also dealing with the emotion around it because you're like, the only thing I could do is take this person out of the house. I'm going to put him in the system. The system is going to probably mess him up because now he's in the system. He comes out. He's not going to be any better from being in the system. I can't do anything to help. I know there's not enough services to help. So it's like, how do you even, to me, as a, I can't even imagine as a police officer seeing that every day and being able to go home and remain open and caring and human and community at some point you've got to shut some of it off like i just think it's a cycle for everybody it's like how do we get out of that you know and start creating more human interactions and humanness in the world so we can begin to heal our communities because it just seems like it's just this it almost seems hopeless in a way it's like there's no end to being to stop these things from happening you know what i mean yeah yeah, I mean, totally agree. I think 
I'm hoping that what's happening and that's why I'm you know, doing the work that I do is just telling the story. And I'm hoping because of my blackness and my experience in law enforcement that people will hear what I'm saying. And cause I'm really, oh, I feel like, and, and I've been, I'm open about it. I'm very candid about it. I, I'm very, yeah, you know, macing a nine-year-old in the back of the car with a hands cuff behind her is fucked up. <laughs> you know, there, there's, yeah. there, there's, nothing, there's nothing good about that by any stretch of the imagination. And I get that. Okay, I'm not, uh, please, I hope folks know I'm not, I'm not here to take the responsibility of law enforcement doing stuff that's crappy as hell, but I'm also, also very acutely aware there's some responsibility on the community to pick up something and do some things on their own. I mean, that they have to be responsible for. You gotta figure out how to, schools, where are the school counselors? You got a school counselor for three schools to try to manage you know, 2000 students. I mean, what, what, what sense is that? You need mental health, social workers and counselor in every school. I mean, that, that, that's where this stuff starts. It starts, you know, in figuring out how to wrap services around these families and, and in order to guide them along so they can be healthy citizens. And it's so interesting because right now with COVID, the kids aren't in school, so it's worse. And they're talking yeah. about how they're not getting the education they need. I thought it was, um, you know, it's interesting because um, in Charlotte, just like Durham, we have these huge churches, like these huge ass churches, right? And they're saying how kids can't get on the internet at home because they don't have the money to pay for the internet. They don't have the equipment. I'm thinking if all these huge churches that have internet and they have rooms inside the churches, it's not just, you know, where you go to sit and pray, like they have rooms, they have community rooms. They all opened and took kids around the city into these rooms and gave them a place to get on the internet. Like it would solve so many of our problems to me. I mean, I think it's a travesty that, you know, to me, that's what churches are about. Like to me, they're supposed to, I just see them with all of the, you know, Christian teachings and what have you, like we would be really opening our hearts more and finding a way to step into communities because if you, I mean, what else do you do? You know, like ch children may not be getting the food that they need to eat right now. They're not getting the discipline. They're not getting the help in school. I mean, there's so many things that we're just gonna have generations on top of generations. And it doesn't have to be just black churches. Some of these white churches are humongous. You're humongous. They're, there's a church near my parents' house. This place is like a mall. Right. You cannot tell me they, and they have a school. You cannot tell me they don't have space to house more and more and more and more children to bring them in. Do you know what I mean? It's just, it's like, how can all the organizations work together, whether it's church and state working together, it doesn't matter. Figure out one for the first time, how can we do it? Because the main focus is, how we take care of the community. How can we begin to find a way to connect so many parts of the community so that we can actually begin to support each other, you know, and change that and see humanness and be caring and know that, that drug dealer maybe is a drug dealer because he had no other alternative to figure out how they were gonna eat. Or maybe they're about to get kicked out their house and, you know, he was a child that's figure out how he's going to keep a roof over his head, you know, because his mother wasn't home. What is he supposed to do? Going to social services is not even the answer all the time and nor do they have the placement for all these kids, right? So 
one system to another is just inundated with so much and the people are too, you know? Yeah. And I, and I, I, I agree with it. I agree with everything that you just said, but I, I guess I just go back to this moment that's happening for people who don't know, but want to get involved or see what's happening. It really is. People got, you got to fund those things that you want to see a difference in. Like you said, it, the system of social services is overwhelmed. Well, maybe that means you need to put more money there. Maybe you need to hire more social workers. You know, maybe you need to make more space for, for individuals who want to help individuals who have substance abuse. You know, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's follow the dollar, follow the dollar. And uh, right now, all that stuff is at the doorstep of law enforcement. And we just weren't built for that. We just were not built for that. And I'm hoping these conversations, I'm hoping these conversations, when people want to hear and have this discussion, um, that they, they see that, that you know, if you can't, get the, you can't get the money out of law enforcement, then maybe we need to figure out how to put the money where it needs to be. And so, yeah. Uh, you're absolutely right. How do we do this collective? In fact, with my friend on that podcast, you know, y'all don't want to hear this. She actually said the same thing that you said. Church, open up your doors, let the kids get access to the internet. Because there's a church on, in the South, there's a church on every corner. Churches uh, have Facebook pages, so you know they have internet. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they got Facebook, Instagram, they have all that social media stuff. So why can't they figure out how to help the children learn too? Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, it's just all, um, I don't know, it's just all interesting. And I just, you know, even as far as white police officers, I remember you were mentioning something in one of your conversations about the police officers becoming part of the community and not sending them, like a police officer that lives in my community, let's say, sending him to a community on the other side of town to police is not a good idea. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? Um, I think what, what's happening, they're trying to get, I know here at Durham, they're doing incentives to get officers to actually live in Durham, whether they're living in the particular communities that they work, but just to be a part of the Durham community at, at large. Um, so I think that's important because you become part of the fabric. You understand what Durham is about. I mean, I, I love Durham. I'm, I am a bull city girl. I wasn't born here, but I, I love this town. And so to, to be a part of that, and I think that's what some agencies are trying to figure out. And that's where community can also be a part of that too, that are we, can we offer incentives to officers to actually live in this community? But we see the, the piece that people forget is, but you got to remember if his wife is a CEO in Wake County, where you think she going to stay? Right. You're going to stay in, in, in Wake County. So we, you know, we have, we have to understand that. And then, you know, you're not paying law enforcement a lot of money. It, there's no money, it's almost like teachers, it, you can't get rich being a police officer. I mean, it, the money is getting a little bit better, but you know, the cost of living is going up. But uh, so, so communities can get involved into how are we hiring, who are we hiring, how are you training? Those are questions people can, can, can ask. Uh, there are some other things that they're, they're doing in some agencies for community to get officers more involved in community is curriculum. I don't know exactly what some are, but I know it's like a career track. So if BJ, a police officer says, you know, one day I want to be deputy chief or I want to be chief. So if that's a track that I want to get on, then I've got to do X. I've got to get my degree. I've got to get associate's degree. And also as part of that, I got to do some community work and not get paid for it. 
You know, I got to come back into the community. So, so, so that way, what I'm demonstrating to this organization is I buy into your philosophy. And how do so, you have the bandwidth for that? I mean, that, I mean, to me, that's the big thing. It's like, how do you have the bandwidth? Like, you know, as much as I work, I can't even imagine, like, I hear what you're saying about going to community meetings and getting involved and hearing the yeah. budgets. I know that I personally don't even have the bandwidth for that. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, I can't even imagine taking but, that on and. Yeah, but see that you wouldn't but there are some folks i did you know as mm -hmm. as uh, you know saying so not not everybody is going to do that but the ones that are going to be like yeah i don't mind doing that you know i i don't mind coming in on saturday mornings and hanging out or going to a meeting or doing xyz not everybody is going to do that so what so what that track does it it pushes out the ones that that are willing to make the sack well i don't want to call it a sacrifice but are committed so yeah, everybody's not going to either be able to do it because of their own family structure or whatever right. responsibility, but those that want to and can um, will do it. And that's what you wanna do. You wanna figure out how to create something that can give you those leaders, those future leaders in your organization that are like, look, you know, I love the community. I need to get involved. I wanna get involved and those types of things. So yeah, everybody's not, everybody can't do it, but you need to create an opportunity for those that want to and are willing to. Growing up in the South as a black woman, what made you become a police officer? <laughs> Cause I thought I told you that, uh, but I'll tell you again, I needed a job. I don't remember you telling me that. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. The only reason I, I, I left, you know, when I went to Central for a little while and, um, and I have a really Central? good well, North Carolina Central University. Okay. Uh, I went there in 1975 and Fortunately, I have really good friends around me because I always tell people so I flunked out of college. And what this really good friend of mine says, no, you didn't flunk it. You just didn't go to class. <laughs> uh, so that's kind of what what led to me went on, you know, shortly after not going to class. And uh, luckily for me, my father bought me a car because I made a promise to him that if he buys me a car, I will never put my hands in your wallet again. And he did. And so anyway, I came to Durham and, you know, worked several jobs. I had three or four jobs working, trying to make it. And um, another friend said, I think you'd be a good police officer. They're hiring. And I was like, I can work one job <laughs> and I ain't got to work three jobs. I said, sign a sister up, sign a sister up. And wow. as a universe would have it, um, it fit me like a glove. I mean, I, I, I enjoy it. I, I love it. And my, I think my core being, being raised the way that I was raised um, had a lot to do with, I saw people where they were. I was raised by family that said, my mother's a teacher. She's 90 now, she's a teacher. And one, some of the things I remember her, uh, Thanksgiving, my dad and I would take a Thanksgiving dinner plate to the town drunk to make sure he had dinner on Thanksgiving day. Mm. My mother would work late, uh, couldn't get her work, school work done. She had to bring it home because she was working late, trying to get stuff done. But the custodian would always come in and talk to her. And some of the loudest laughter that I heard was between her and that custodian. Mm. So those examples for me as I was growing up was basically the least of us are the best of us. Mm. And so... Mm. So me working and specifically working in the black and brown of under under resourced communities, 
I just saw human beings. You know, I didn't see that's a drug dealer. I didn't see that was a prostitute. I mean, I knew that's what they were doing, but I saw them as human beings. So that being raised in the South and being raised in Eastern North Carolina and the way my parents raised me, uh, obviously set me on a course that I was not aware of to be a police officer. And um, let me say that again, the least of us is the best of us. The least of us is the best of us. I love that. That's really- yeah, because we don't, you know, for the most part, we don't see them. I mean, I, I don't know how many people go to rest stops and walk by the person who is cleaning that nothing but bathrooms and doesn't acknowledge them. I make an, uh, I am intentional if I see mm-hmm. them to say thank you. I do the same thing. I mean, yeah. they're cleaning bathrooms all day long. That's why, you know, it's not like they're working in a school building where they're cleaning rooms or cleaning the kitchen. They're cleaning bathrooms all day long. The in the worst areas, in the worst place, right? Like, oh, yeah. I mean, and because you never know who's coming through. So the, uh, for me, it's like, what? Just say thank you. Just right. And 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 I had a friend of mine one time, Donnie. We were at a um, conference somewhere here in North Carolina, um, and this woman was coming out of the bathroom, and I looked her dead in the face. And I was like, Hey, how you doing? I mean, it was just like I'd seen a. My friend said you talked to her like you just seen a, your lost friend. And you could tell the woman was just happy to be seen. Right. Wow. <laughs> just happy My heart be- just hurt. Like, imagine how as much as we as humans fight to be seen, everybody fights to be seen. Everybody yeah. wants to be seen by someone. Yeah. But there are so many people that, that are invisible that we don't even notice. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. And yeah, my friend, she still talks about it. Today. She, said, you, she said, that lady was just, she just lit up. And all I did was say, what's up? What's happening? Just like I lost seeing a best friend. And that's all it takes. It's all, it's all it takes. And you could do more of that as a police officer. You can do more, cause, yeah, because you you meeting people at their lowest point all day, mm, every day. Mm. <laughs> all day, every day. And um, so, yeah, I mean, why not take advantage of trying to let them know you see them? Mm. What would you want people to know right now having this conversation, like what could you offer people that you could start to help them change their minds and perspectives about the people in communities that are struggling, black and brown communities that people are struggling and well, as well as help them understand the police more. As far as the police concern, I would say just try to, try to stay away from the narrative of they as much as possible. Uh, I get that we are a collective, mm-hmm. and, but so are individual races and communities. We have a tendency to say they, but it really boils down to individual decisions and or actions. So mm-hmm. I would just, and, and, and also to listen to what's obviously going on nationally with you know, the movements and everything, but what's going on locally? You know, so, so the space that you're in what's happening locally with your law enforcement agency. Do you know them? Are you involved? Are you asking the right questions to let them know what you want them to know? Uh, and, and just as a statistical part, so folks can understand, there are close to 18,000 law enforcement state and local agencies across this country. 15,000 of those, let me repeat that, 15,000 of those have a staff of less from 25 or less. Wow. Wow. So, so when you start thinking about 
you know, defunding the things that we've talked about earlier, you got to remember that's a small budget, right? (laughs) That's a tiny budget. Right. So, so I would ask people to think locally, act locally and get involved as far as our under resourced and overly stressed communities, start paying attention as to what's going on in those communities. Um, they, I guess the best, let me give you this example. I've been mentoring a young lady for 13 years. She's 20, she'll be 21 this year. She's been struggling. She's doing okay. Um, had a little run in with the law within last year, got worked through that also. She's done everything she needs to do. Um, I'm there mainly for su- support. Uh, she calls my wife and I, her, her parents, her second parents. She got a job at Duke University. She's an LPN. She was so excited to be able to pay all her bills and to get her hair done. She's been living in, in you know, on governmental assistance with her, with her mother for ages. So when I heard that, I need people to understand, all people wanna do is just work, save a little money and be happy and get the hair done. That's it. She was just as happy as she could be. So- She could take care of herself. I've seen transformation in pay. Somebody go from barely making anything to finally making something, the difference. It wasn't like they just started going out and buying a bunch of junk. Yeah. It's just, it does something to your self-esteem to be yep. able to take care of yourself. Yes. Gives yes. you value. The fact yes. that you can take care of yourself gives you value. Yes. And you have to be able to make a wage that you can do that. Yes. Otherwise your value slips and your value slips is where you tend yes. to depression sets in, yes. you get into trouble, you do things maybe you shouldn't be doing the whole nine yeah. yards. And then you've got to also figure out how to numb that pain because you have no value. You're like worthless now, right? Yeah. Like at least you think that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how would you not if you're out here working three or four jobs? you get nowhere. And you're still not getting anywhere. Yeah. So, so yeah. So I would just, you know, community just remember, you know, people just want to be able to, you know, live comfortably and nobody, you know, ain't nobody trying to be a millionaire. We just need to live comfortably, pay your bills and enjoy a little bit of life. Go on vacation every now and then. So yeah, just, just don't surmise that simply because people are living in certain amount at certain parts of your community that they're not worthy to be able to, or not that they don't want to, you know, just things are kind of working against them and you had to help them figure out how to do better or help everybody them. wants value. Everybody wants value. Everybody wants to be seen. And what would you say about what advice could you give that someone can remain with their hearts open? I mean, you know, that's a really, I'm glad because actually I'm working on that right now, trying to figure out how, and and the reason I said, I mean, I know what to say. I'm just trying to figure out how to say that to a room of police officers Uh uh, who may not understand the communities that they're working. Like like we talked about earlier, they're constantly seeing this this Mm -hmm. stuff. You know, so when you go into a space, uh, what I'm trying to figure out, I think what I want to say, like I tell the community, just be willing to receive that everybody's lived experience is different than yours. So you need to meet them where that is and not judge them for that. You're meeting them in chapter 22. You don't know what the first 21 were. So you need to just be open and be able to put, basically you need to take a breath to understand that you're probably going to receive here and see something that 
has nothing to do with anything you have lived, seen, or heard, and just accept that. Because oh, they just want to be, that's it. Just, just be in a space, allow your body, allow your mind to be open to receive it. Whether you accept it is a different thing, but just at least to be able to receive it so the other person doesn't feel like you're not even willing to receive this information. And maybe not take it personally. Yeah, it's really so, not about you. That's it. Don't, it's not about you. That's right. Don't don't go into it like I'm getting ready to be offended by what they're getting ready to say. No, let's just receive. Or it. their actions, or their tone of voice, or whatever, or the words. Yeah. It's not about you. It's about right. whatever their lived experience is. Nothing to do with you. You just happen to be the punching bag in the moment. Yes. Yeah, we got to be able to receive because I mean, you know, I think Donna the the biggest thing law enforcement has done, this career has done for me, mentoring this young lady has done for me. I'm checked all the time. I'm, mm. My life is checked all the time because uh, I'm blessed. I'm blessed because uh, I've seen some stuff. I, I, I ride by stuff where I've seen bodies and seen things and heard things. And, you know, I got my own little trauma that I deal with, you know, just the stuff that I've seen. So I know that I'm blessed. So this this job, this mentoring per person, this this and this young lady, it keeps me checked. It keeps me checked that I I, I got to receive it because that's not my lived experience. And I know this person is a good person. That's just a different experience. Wow, that's awesome. I can see where it's got its challenges, but I think awareness is the first part, right? Like being aware of it. If you can continue to be aware of it, you can really transform it, right? You can notice it and do something about it. It's when we can't see it or we turn it off that um, we can't do anything about it. Yes, that's that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Can't turn it off because it, it it's gonna be there. Because when you turn it back on, it's still there. Yeah. Well, this is great. This was um, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> More than you expect. My, my heart is feeling it right now. Like I feel it everywhere. My whole heart is really feeling this conversation really deeply. And you've also given me a lot to think about in my own heart. And um, yeah, especially as everybody, all anybody ever wants us to be seen. And I think, you know, that is, that's a really big one. So, so thank you. Yeah. Thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah. I want to stuff from you too, because you're always talking about it. gotta, it's gotta be your heart. It's gotta be your heart. How gotta be your heart. heart. Gotta be the heart. I mean, and you're right. I mean, it's, and I think for people that's like kind of difficult, don't you think? Because people are, because mm -hmm. when you hear heart, you're, you're, some people automatically go, it's gonna hurt my heart. It's gonna break my heart. You know what I'm saying? Instead of being in a receiving kind of way, but we always think, I don't wanna hurt my heart. I don't wanna- Well, it does, but the thing is, if you yeah. don't have some pain around it, you're not gonna move through it. It does, yeah. it's part of, it's like, you know, what are you never gonna love someone because you might get your heart broken? Like, you know, it was the experience of loving greater than the heartbreak, you know what I mean? So, yeah. you know, we're always gonna feel things. We're always gonna move through emotions, but we just always know that there's another side to get to. 
And it's like, you have to move through pain in order to open your heart up more to love deeper. And so yes. it's part of the process. But when you get to the other side, it's pretty incredible. Like yes. the world looks different. The The color of the sky, the blue in the sky is a totally <laughs> different blue than it was before, right? Yeah. You, can see the, you can see the twinkles and the nuances and the subtleties now, right? Like yeah. it's yeah. just, it's there's like more magic in the air, but you have to be willing to go through that part in order to get there, so yeah oh, yeah you're right yeah so thank you so much for your conversation today and for giving people um another perspective of things to see things differently because that's what i'm all about there's always another way there's always another thought there's always another way of seeing things and how can we do that as well as find compassion open our hearts love differently you know move through the world a little differently really move through that heart yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It was humbling that you wanted to, to have. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Well, I have to say that after that conversation, I'm a bit speechless and my heart is deeply moved. It's really made me see things a lot differently and given me a lot to think about. And so I'm going to sign off here and say thank you so much, so much for listening. And I hope that you see the world a little bit differently and start to open up your heart a little bit more. I'm your host, Donna O, and this is Move Through and With Heart. Thank you so much.